Catherine Amir Farr. And I'm Cal Raustiala. And this is International, International Law Behind, Behind the Headlines. Headlines, coming to you from the American Society of International Law. So welcome to another episode of International Law Behind the Headlines. This is co-host Cal Rastiala, and it's a great honor to have on the podcast today uh, former Secretary of Defense, Ash Carter. Uh, Secretary Carter is currently at the Belfer Center, where he's director at the Kennedy School at Harvard, and is the author of a new book, Inside the Five-Sided Box, which is a kind of interesting mashup of memoir and, uh, I guess I'd say, kind of Pentagon 101 manual. Uh, which really goes through all uh, all interesting aspects of the Pentagon and of DOD, both uh, currently and historically. So uh, it's a terrific book, which I recommend. And Secretary Carter, I'm really glad you're able to come on the podcast. Cal, I'm very glad to be here. Terrific. So I thought we could begin, there's so many things in the book that you cover, but I thought maybe we'd start with a big picture issue, which is one of the more important roles that any Secretary of Defense has, which is articulating our national security strategy in a broad sense. And you note in the book, uh, in a kind of uh, funny way that the Pentagon adopted your particular articulation, uh, which was through this acronym of CRICKET, uh, which, which stands for China, Russia, Iran, Korea, and terrorism, uh, that those were the priorities that you laid out uh, during your tenure. And I thought we could just start with that and and just reflect back on whether you think those are the right priorities. Would you change them today? And how did you sort of arrive at, at those particular ones and not, um, let's say, ISIS or cyber? Well, ISIS is included in terrorism. But okay. uh, I, uh, there wasn't rocket science in cricket. And in fact, I didn't call it cricket. <laughs> I, I, the Pentagon thrives. And you're right. My book is kind of an executive guide to running the world's largest organizations. And one of the things that it thrives on is clarity and consistency. And you have to be very clear about who the potential enemies are, or real or potential enemies, that we have to be able to deter and, if necessary, defeat. And I simply named them China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, and terrorism. Why that was notable were two things. First of all, as I relate in the book, I started hearing everybody around the Pentagon talking about cricket, and I didn't know what that meant until I was informed that that was my strategy in acronym form. Acronym, very typical of the Pentagon. I, I wouldn't quite call that a strategy. To me, that's a name the parts, and was really quite obvious. But it was notable because for... The 20 years before, I'd say, we were not clear about whom we were supposed to worry about. If you go back in earlier Pentagon guidance, they would talk about near-peer competitors. Mm -hmm. We're near-peer competitors. Uh, That's really China and Russia is what is meant, but the names weren't named. If you go back further... When I was in the Pentagon in the 1990s, we talked about two major theater wars as though they were two abstract things on imaginary continents. And what we were talking about really in those days were Iraq and North Korea. So there's been a long tradition of trying to intellectualize our defense strategy by thematizing it. And I 
felt that that was working against us. And we weren't, uh, uh, and particularly some of the newer and younger people, of course, in, in the department need to be told what to do. And they know that China is a problem and they don't understand why we're waffling about saying so. So that is how cricket came about, simply naming the parts. You mentioned other issues like cyber and so forth. Um, cyber is a thematic uh, problem, Cal. It pervades all five. But cyber isn't a person. Cyber isn't a thing. Cyber is somebody who's attacking you. And there, again, I think, and when it comes to technology, it's important not to be too abstract. Um, people ask me, for example, whether if someone attacks us using cyber means, is that an attack? And that's a very strange question to me, because if, if, if you attack the American people, from my point of view, the Secretary of Defense, whose job it is to protect our people, an attack is an attack, and I don't care how they did it. So uh, all this is to say that clarity and consistency are very important in matters as grave as national security, and sometimes you just have to be very simple about it, and um, that's what I was doing uh, around the birth of the acronym Cricket. Great, great. So if I could, let me pick up on what you just said about cyber, because that's obviously an extremely interesting question that you raise kind of implicitly about what the threshold is, and one that's of great interest to international lawyers. So just to make it concrete, when the Sony hack occurred a few years back, uh, would you consider that or did you consider that an attack on the United States? Uh, yeah, I don't think considered an attack on the United States. I did consider it an attack upon Americans on our territory, mm -hmm. um, which is a crime for sure, uh, with international implications for sure. Should we have done more? I believe we should have. Um, do you have to respond in kind? Not at all. Um, uh, it, it, North Korea can be meant to, can be felt, uh, uh, punished in other ways than by cyber. Uh, I feel that way about the Russians and the Chinese as well. And so an attack is an attack. And if we're going to defend ourselves, and in particular, if we're going to punish or deter by threat of punish, punishment, uh, we don't have, the punishment doesn't have to be cyber. You know, Cal, when people flew airplanes into our buildings, we didn't go and fly airplanes into their buildings. We did what we were good at to destroy them. And in the same way, if somebody uses cyber against the United States, all bets are off. I'll use whatever... I have that will punish. Well, I completely agree with that. And I, I, I wonder, is it a two-way street? So in the other, or, or does it go in reverse in the sense that is it appropriate in your view to use cyber? I, I assume the answer is yes, to use cyber in, in response to perhaps a traditional use of force, a kinetic sure. use of force. Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And we have plans and capabilities to do that. I wish they were better. 
uh, uh, between you and me and this podcast <laughs> insane that than they are um, but uh, absolutely um, it's a can be a powerful tool it has its drawbacks Cal practically speaking and the drawbacks are uh, first that you can't always precisely predict what the uh, attack is going to do. Um, if you remember, uh, there have been a number of instances around the world where somebody, where party A attacked party B, but the software they used, a worm of some kind, ended up affecting others. Sure. And when we would discuss our cyber armamentarium with, for example, the president, President Obama, at the time I was Secretary of Defense, he would um, reasonably ask, and by the way, his lawyers would reasonably ask as well, uh, what is exactly is this going to do and are you sure? And we needed to have a good answer to that, and that kind of answer was not always forthcoming uh, in the case of cyber. And all that means is that you don't have a a weapon really that's ready for prime time yet. And that can be true of missiles and ships and bombs and other things as well. But, um, it's, uh, pervades the cyber business and adds a certain fog to it. And for that reason, yeah, I too, just like the president, uh, you're the person responsible and, uh, I would be careful about using cyber, not because I was afraid of using it, um, but because I wanted to make sure I knew what I was doing. No doubt, no doubt. So I want to turn to more conventional weaponry, in this case, nonproliferation, but just one one last question on cyber, if I might. I'm just curious about the attack threshold issue we started with, uh, and uh, Russia in particular as an adversary that has, you know, for a long time, as long as I've been paying attention to cyber issues, we've mostly thought about or we did mostly fear some kind of attack that sometimes was characterized as a kind of cyber Pearl Harbor by different people or something that would be on the order of taking down a power grid, something that would have kinetic effects within our territory. And instead, Russia seemed extremely adept at using disinformation, for example, in the 2016 election and and in many other ways. Uh, And I'm wondering if you think those disinformation campaigns through cyber means also rise to the level of an attack. Sure they do. They're an attack on our political system. And the Russians, remember, these are the, the little green men uh, users in right. Ukraine. Uh, they're masters at trying to sow confusion about what they're up to and to suggest that it's below the threshold of provocation. Uh, I don't think we did enough to punish Russia for what it did in our 2016 elections, either in the Obama administration or in the Trump administration. Agreed. If you want proof of that, all you need to do is look at Vladimir Putin. Does this look like a man who has chastened? This looks like a man who has given that tactic up. He looks more like the Cheshire Cat right now. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's the opposite of deterrence. So they don't fool me. Uh, Of course, the Russians are masters of this. They've been doing it a long time. And it is the weak man's hand, 
that they're playing. Russia's in decline, and all it has left is dirty tricks trying to divide the West and nuclear weapons. And so you see Putin highlighting them because they are um, the uh, only his only ways of having influence. Secretary Carter, that's a great transition to issues of nuclear weapons, which I know you you have really spent a lifetime uh, studying and paying attention to, and many of your colleagues are, are have as well. And so I I want to talk a little bit about that issue. So North Korea, obviously critical. Uh, proliferation challenge. And I'm, I guess I have a, a, a question there, but also a question about other states. So with regard to North Korea, uh, is, there, is, is the game over there? Uh, as some have said, there's nothing we can really do. Uh, and, and if so, should we expect to see more proliferation throughout Asia? So for example, maybe South Korea or Japan? Well, one of the reasons why uh, we can't and shouldn't regard it as over is for the reason you just said, which is if it just keeps going and keeps going and the threat to its neighbors continues to grow and we find no way of uh, uh, assuaging their concerns, then they may take matters into their own hands. I think that both the Japanese and the South Koreans are a long, long way from doing that. At the same time, I don't give up on North Korea. Our objective since George W. Bush, um, by the way, he's the one who extracted from the North Korean leader at that time, Kim Il-sung, the promise that North Korea would not go nuclear, a promise which Kim Il-sung's grandson gave to President Trump, who didn't, I seem to understand, that he was buying the same horse twice that George Bush had bought 30 years before, and they haven't done it, but they have from time to time slowed their pace and modulated their behavior when we have pushed back on them. I saw that, I have no point in going into the details here in, in, in this podcast, but there were pauses in the 93, 94 time, later in the 90s, during the Bush administration, 06 and 07, not much in the way of negotiation in the Obama administration at all. Obama didn't seem to think he would get anywhere with the North Koreans and his emphasis, and certainly mine as Secretary of Defense, and when I was the number two and when I was the number three, was on deterrence and defense, not diplomacy. But I think diplomacy, um, has from time to time had some effect on slowing their program. And certainly our diplomacy is a powerful disincentive to proliferation in the region when it takes the form of us sticking up for our traditional alliances there. So if Japan knows that we will be with them if North Korea attacks Japan because of our alliance, and North Korea knows that, that's the most powerful protection Japan can have and much better than having its own nuclear weapons. But if that goes away because we continue to say that we don't value alliances and don't stick by alliances, we'll sacrifice that benefit. That is one of the many benefits 
of having alliances. You know, Americans always act as though alliances are a gift we give to foreigners. And they're not. Uh, they're one of the ways that we enhance our own security. And one way we do that is to prevent proliferation by showing people that they can be safe in another way without having nuclear weapons. So, that, so there are things we can do in Asia. And if I can say also just about nonproliferation in general, please. I, I know that you you know have a, your own a lot of ex, your own expertise, and you discuss in this podcast uh, cyber. We talked about that. We may come to artificial intelligence, autonomy, all these new technologies, and how they're affecting warfare. There's one thing that isn't changing, hasn't changed, and won't change, and that is the overwhelming, awesome, fearsome power of nuclear weapons. They've been around a long time, but there's nothing that comes close to their destructiveness and their potential to destroy societies and shake the world. And you can never forget that. So when I was Secretary of Defense, yes, I had cricket. Uh, China, Russia, Iran, Korea, and terrorism, they are the things right in front of me here and now. I had the technological future to think about, artificial intelligence, the bio-revolution, which will follow the digital revolution, and how that will affect warfare. Um, uh, outer space, undersea warfare, all these frontiers, but not in the headlines and not in at the top of all the strategic conversation, but never far from my mind, and certainly never submerged, was the fact that nuclear security is the key. If you don't have that, you're not going to have security no matter what else you do. That is why, by the way, I was determined that we do recapitalize our own nuclear deterrent. And I know there are people who uh, don't want to do that, fearing either that it'll cost more than they want to spend or that it will somehow stimulate an arms race. Uh, to the second point, we have not uh, changed our nuclear arsenal. We haven't built it up. We haven't improved it uh, for 25 years. And during that time, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, India, Pakistan, they've all just plowed on straight. And so you can't make the case based upon historical evidence that we are the cause of an arms race or arms racing behavior on the part of anybody else. We haven't done anything and they're still racing. So I don't, I'm not recommending a race, but I am recommending that we continue to have powerful nuclear arsenal for the United States, both to deter attack upon ourselves and to provide reassurance to allies so they don't take matters in their own hands and build their own nuclear weapons. Well, as you note in the book, we, and I think as many listeners know, in the past, we had a obviously much larger arsenal. And uh, you make the interesting point in the book that I think it was Dick Cheney who presided over the largest decrease uh, in the overall size of, uh, of our military forces. And, and, um, and we really went from a high point uh, in the 80s uh, or maybe even earlier uh, to something much, much lower today. 
Let me ask you about allies, though. You you um, you, you mentioned the importance of of kind of keeping the lid on proliferation, and I guess I'm curious about whether you think uh, the NPT plays a role, an important role, or is it really our treaty alliances that is driving a lot of that? Uh, and how you see the balance between the two, and then related to that, with regard to Turkey, uh, are we seeing an alliance partner now maybe breaking out? Well, uh, the NPT will it has no effect on the North Koreas and Iran's in terms of their own determination to uh, hold out at least the threat in Iran's case of getting a nuclear weapon. However, what it does is organize the, an international norm so that when those of us who want to oppose an Iran or a North Korea's nuclear program have the world with us. So that is a for, it is a force multiplier for fighting proliferation. It doesn't by itself uh, take care of countries that are determined to proliferate anyway. It just means that the gang up on them is larger uh, than it would be if ganging up on them for their proliferation behavior were left entirely the United States and perhaps some local allies. So that's the value of the NPT and the reason that it's a, a good thing to have. Do you want to comment on the issue of Turkey? Oh, I, yes. You know, yes, I'm just curious about whether, you know, we hear these noises from Erdogan and, uh, you know, Turkey's become a complicated uh, ally, to say the Turkey's least. Turkey's always been complicated, no more complicated than today. Uh, the proximate cause of that in these days is Erdogan. Uh, I've met with Erdogan. Um, he is uh, very volatile. He's very egotistical. Um, I think he is uh, exposing Turkey very seriously by uh, seeming to be unmindful of Turkey's need for the alliance with the United States or with Europe. Um, my conversations with him and other Turks, I was always skeptical and openly skeptical to them that they had any real alternatives. Um, I realized that the when Merkel and Germany said that Turkey would not be part of the EU, that was the original sin as far as Erdogan is concerned. That was the trigger that said, I'm not really welcome in this Western community and began a era of acting out that was also consistent with his political personality as some, of something of a rabble rouser. And when I dealt with the Turks, I my view was always just to talk to them straight, which is don't threaten me with things that you can't do. They were always talking about going into Syria and creating a safe zone which is what they're talking about doing now. And I, it, what I can promise you is this Turkish military will not accomplish a safe zone in northern Syria. They'll expel a lot of helpless people into a strip of land in northern Syria, but it won't be safe. 
So I told them again and again that in my professional judgment and as that of my military, those plans, they would bungle those plans. And I also told them that I didn't think they had a real, realistic alternative in Vladimir Putin's Russia that in the long run would benefit Turkey to the extent that a relationship with the West does. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to head off in another direction for a while, and that's not a good thing. I don't see Turkey uh, heading easily in the direction, which is, I think, your immediate question of nuclear proliferation. They don't have any history of doing that uh, or any of the ingredients or the personnel uh, ready to go that we see in, for example, Iran. Okay. So let me ask you about something you brought up at the beginning of our conversation, uh, which is you mentioned President Obama and, and his lawyers sometimes raising questions or objections to various proposals. And I'm curious, you know, reading through your book, you you cover a lot of things. You don't devote a lot of attention to the role of lawyers in the Pentagon, but of course there are a tremendous number within DOD. And I'm just curious about your own experience about the role that lawyers increasingly play. I've always been struck by the fact that we are the most powerful nation, most powerful military in history. And yet as time goes on, we, we use more and more lawyers uh, willingly. And um, you know, some think that's a problem, others think it's salutary. And I'm curious where you come down on whether it's a good thing or a bad thing and, and, and how did it work in practice? Well, the, the 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 commanders complained about it from time to time. Never bothered me that much. It, it's obviously since Barack Obama was a lawyer, it was a it was a, a way of thinking that was very familiar with him. But he to him, but he didn't allow himself to be imprisoned by it. And the Department of Defense had a series of spectacularly talented general counsels. Um, let's see, uh, uh, Stephen Preston, uh, Jamie Gorelick, Jay Johnson. These people were, many more I could name, uh, very helpful. And it wasn't that it was a mother may I situation with them, which would not be welcome because we have to do what we have to do. We have to protect our people uh, and we have to destroy our enemies. And, um, but at the same time, uh, we're a society of law and order. We want to live in a lawful world and they invariably could help you get where you wanted to get in a way that was respectful of those principles. So it didn't bother me a lot. Sometimes it, uh, introduced a little period of delay when we were going to conduct an operation for sure because it was necessary for them to consider things from a legal point of view. But I, let me put it this way. I was never stopped from doing something that I thought was necessary to protect my people by lawyers. Um, and I was many times aided in finding a better a uh, more precise way of accomplishing my objective because I had the input of lawyers. So it was absolutely fine from my point of view. Uh, then there was the whole issue also of the, um, uh, 
the international law and domestic law as they applied to conduct conduct of operations in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and Syria and Iraq. And we can talk about that too, but that was a big issue and a congressional issue, which is legal, but is fundamentally political and constitutional. Agreed. Agreed. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but I do want to just maybe close out by asking, well, actually, let me pause for a second. I, I, since you raised the issue of the AUMF implicitly just now, maybe we could just take a minute on how important is it that we reauthorize or sort of reboot our authorizations to cover the kind of situations we see now. I mean, we're in many, in many of our theaters, we're dealing with authorizations that date back to 9-11. Um, in your view, is that a, a big problem, a small problem, not a problem? I, well, I think it's a legitimate issue. It was the congressional branch's way of challenging presidential power to make war. And since what Congress does is pass laws, they passed a law saying that they got us a vote in matters of war and peace. And because that's in a law, it's called a legal issue, but it's really a political and constitutional issue. And my view was always, I am happy to have a new AUMF. And I argued, I testified uh, that I didn't oppose it, and I was absolutely fine with it. I didn't think it was necessary, um, but if somebody, if they wanted to pass a new one, that would be okay, provided two things. First, that it did not stop me from doing anything that I could reasonably foresee as necessary to protect my people against terrorists, especially ISIS at that time. And secondly, that it be a non-ambivalent endorsement of what the troops were doing thinking that they were risking their own lives to do the country's will. I didn't want the troops to be left in any other position by a resolution of Congress than of complete support. Um, because it's not a good thing when our, our, our kids are at war and the country is at war with itself internally about whether it's legitimate or not. That's not a desirable situation. So I needed the AUMF to support the citizens' um, uh, determination that we protect ourselves against ISIS and that that fueled the morale of our troops. So it needed to not forbid me from anything that might need to be done in the course of that war, reasonably need to be done, and it need to be supportive of the troops. Now, if they wanted to forbid a long, large ground war, which was one of the propositions, unless Congress agreed to it, that was fine with me because I didn't think there should be a long, large ground war, unless the country was fully behind it. That wasn't what I was intending to wage against ISIS, number one. And number two, if it's long, large, you have the time to ask for Congress to support it. But if I'm going to conduct an operation like the operation that uh, recently killed Baghdadi or that, that we used to kill bin Laden mm -hmm. 
in something that is exigent and immediate, I can't be going to Congress to ask for permission to do those things. So I need to have, and the president needs to have some reasonable scope to act. But if it's a big, long war, then we should have a big, long debate about that. And that's absolutely uh, fine. So I think there are AOMFs that meet my criteria and there are uh, AOMFs that, that don't. But if they met my criteria, I was all for them. Interesting. All right. So let's let's wrap up with a frontier question, uh, which is covered in your book. You have a brief passage about AI and uh, and some of the issues that are raised by the use of AI in, in warfare. And uh, I think that's a really fascinating question that increasingly people are concerned about um, and interested in. And so I'm just curious about, you know, one, do, do you think that uh, AI in general seems to be playing an ever larger role in a number of areas that we didn't expect? Uh, is, it, is it something that we're going to see a lot of in future war fighting? And if so, are we prepared in the sense that uh, prepared legally, prepared uh, organizationally uh, for what may be a really transformative shift in warfare? Um, I know I don't think we're well prepared. And this is an area where I think uh, legal thinking could really help out. Um, AI, so many things go under the rubric of AI. So many people are calling what they're doing AI when it's really just big data. But whatever it is, it's machine-assisted human action and human decision-making. And when you put it that way, you realize right away, and this will always be true of warfare, that there's not going to be anything that is truly autonomous in the literal sense. You may have a missile that once you've fired it, does its own guidance en route to the target, but there is still human accountability there because some human ordered another human to pull the trigger to fire that missile. And the people who designed that missile wrote the software. And they are, in my, from my point of view as a former Secretary of Defense, collectively accountable for the moral consequences of the use of force. And in that sense, I said there would never be autonomy. I would always be responsible, and the president would always be responsible for the use of lethal force in the United States. And what that means if, is if the, you're, you are a vendor or a technologist trying to sell me a machine-assisted weapon, I mean, a, a weapon in which machine-assisted mm-hmm. human decision-making, you need to be able to tell me how I can have the transparency about how that works that allows me there there to be appropriate accountability for doing something so grave. And I feel the same way about so-called AI and big data approaches to, for example, making parole or sentencing decisions or, or certain sensitive kinds of policing decisions or uh, healthcare decisions. These are grave matters. And uh, the, the machine did it. Oh, and autonomous cars also isn't and should not 
stand up in court. A judge is going to say, don't tell me the autonomous vehicle autonomously did it. I want to know how the software was designed that allowed that to happen in the same way that we are holding Boeing responsible now for the design of the 737 MAX aircraft crashed due to a software error. Uh, that software, that was a machine, uh, a, a machine-aided decision was made in the air that proved disastrous. Right. Hundreds of people. And we're not saying that Boeing isn't accountable uh, and they can just say, well, it's in the software. Um, so uh, practically speaking, uh, there will be uh, human accountability and there's going to therefore need to be transparency, a level of transparency in the algorithms underlying AI, standards of integrity and freedom from bias for the data sets that they're trained upon uh, and so forth. These are not, these are design criteria. And if an engineer comes in and tells you that his or her AI fueled uh, gizmo can't tell you exactly why it made a certain decision, then you, you, then you should send them out and say, come back when you have something I can buy. I've been told, Cal, I've been doing defense technology for nearly 40 years, and I've been told by countless technologies, technologists from time to time that they couldn't do something that they just didn't want to do. And so it was everyday life when I was the top weapons buyer in the Defense Department to send somebody out and said, go think about it and come back with something that I can use. And a weapon whose use I can't justify is a weapon I can't use. That's really interesting. And so if you were back in the Pentagon as Secretary of Defense and there was a weapon that took the human element out of trigger pulling, so in other words... In your hypothetical earlier, you had a decision to deploy a particular missile. Uh, but what if that decision was was instead at the level of the machine? Would you oppose deploying those sorts of weapons? Uh, there has to be a human being involved in the decision-making in some way that is responsible and accountable. That doesn't mean that each and every jig and turn of the missile uh, it has to be uh, checked and chosen or chosen by a human being. After all, we do fire a missile and then electronics and chips and everything guide it from there. And there are mm -hmm. people inside the chips. Right. Uh, and so I'm not saying there needs to be a person in the loop. And in fact, my directive that I issued actually back in 2012, when I was the number two in the department, stating this, said that there had to be a human being involved in the decision-making. That's different from being in the loop, which is a technological. Mm -hmm. So there will be a lot of machine assistance, but in the end, when I walk out in front of the cameras, the day after we have made a mistake and let us say mistakenly killed women and children in a airstrike, I can't walk out to those microphones and say the machine did it. You wouldn't allow that. 
you'd crucify me for that. I have to have an explanation for how I and my department and that machine together led to that result and how I and the United States take moral responsibility for that and what we're going to do to fix it or make amends or make sure it doesn't happen again. If I came out and turned to a reporter, the reporters and said, I have nothing to say, the machine did it, that wouldn't sit well. It shouldn't sit well. Um, and I think that as we go into a world of increasingly machine-assisted human decision-making, we can't get confused or lose our way. Right and wrong are still right and wrong, even in the world of AI. That's a terrific place to end. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Secretary Carter. Really appreciate it. And again, I enjoyed your book a lot, and I I highly recommend it, Inside the Five-Sided Box. Cal, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Good to talk to you.